Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Fifty years ago, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court passed Roe v. Wade in a landmark 7-2 decision. On that day, the court held that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment provided a fundamental right to privacy, which protects a pregnant woman's right to an abortion. Or at least it did until this past summer, when the court held in Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization that the U.S. Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. The 6-3 decision, led by conservative justices, effectively undid both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey in turn, sending back full power to each individual state to regulate abortion as they see fit. In some states, like Texas, the writing was already on the wall. Just a year before the Dobbs decision, the local legislature passed SB 8, which banned abortion at six weeks gestation and put out a bounty for anyone who aided or abetted a patient seeking the procedure. That law took effect on September 1st, 2021. When Roe was eventually overturned on June 24th last year, Texas enacted a series of trigger laws that banned abortion outright with almost no exception, putting an incalculable amount of Texans in a precarious position, one of whom is Dr. Gazala Moyeti, a board-certified OBGYN who'd been providing above-board abortions for over a decade until last summer. As she often says, 
She's the child of Iranian immigrants, a mother, a Texan, and a proud abortion provider. She's also our guest today. On the first half of this episode, we discuss the 50-year anniversary of Roe, the conditions in Texas since its repeal, and what it will take to finally secure reproductive justice in America. Then, on the back half, we discuss some of her remarkable story, from her early years in residency to working throughout the pandemic to this very moment where, in Texas, her job is now illegal to perform. If after this episode, or maybe even during, you'd like to learn more about her work, be sure to visit the Pegasus Health Justice Center. We've included a link to their website in the description of this episode. You can also just type in pegasushealthjustice.com. That's Pegasus, P-E-G-A-S-U-S, healthjustice.com. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Gazala Moyeti. Why don't we just do a quick sound test? Okay. What did you have for breakfast today? I had a microwave burrito. It was not great or microwaved all the way through. Did you put it back in the microwave? No, I was already in the car, so. It was too late. Too late. I had to go for it. As you took that second bite, how did you feel? (laughs) Oh, another not cooked burrito. How many times? Have I eaten a partially cooked burrito? So are you saying you've never had a perfect microwave burrito? No, I have never been able to heat it the right amount. Maybe that's an oxymoron, a perfect microwave burrito. Right, exactly. Well, we've established this. Good. Pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Sam. There are so many places to begin and and really so much ground to cover. But I wanted to start with the only place that kind of makes sense to me, which is... Burrito and all. (laughs) How are you doing right now? I'm actually doing okay. That not quite perfect burrito might be like some sort of extended metaphor. What's the metaphor? There isn't perfection to our careers or a linear process to the careers we set out for, who we want to become. And also, maybe once you become that person... Then you realize, like, now what do I do? But for someone who committed her career, education, training to being an abortion doctor in Texas, and now my job is fully illegal, I'm still here. I'm still doing whatever I can do and finding, like, new ways to do my work, be activated, be interested And like, you know, just chill and relax in between, too. Let's talk about the conditions of your work right now, because we're talking around the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade being decided in the Supreme Court. Yeah. But last summer, before the court delivered its decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, you sat down for an interview with Mother Jones. Here's what you said. Abortion bans in general create a conflict between evidence-based care and the best health care we can offer. Physicians and other health care providers are forced to balance the law with what's best for the person in front of them. But that conflict has really been heightened in recent years. We're now really staring off the edge of the cliff. So if 
we were staring off the edge of the cliff before the Supreme Court decision. Where are we now? Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, how you view what's coming forward. That's actually an interesting quote from me that you shared, because really my like theme for this year for myself has been to float. So I guess like thinking back on it, like I'm just going to float off that cliff. But specifically in your state, yeah, you've seen the Texas trigger laws go into effect, which effectively bans abortions from the moment of fertilization with no exceptions, except in the case of imminent threat right. to the life of the person carrying the pregnancy. On a day-to-day, what conditions has that law created? A whole lot of confusion among my colleagues, physicians, nurses, a whole lot of confusion among hospital administrators and lawyers. And really what we're seeing is that depending on where you show up for care in an emergency, you could get a different answer on any given day. So let's imagine a person who is in the second trimester, maybe 16 or 17 weeks pregnant. Their water breaks. This is a miscarriage, but it's not often called a miscarriage. A lot of times we call this a premature, preterm, previable, lots of P's, rupture of membranes. But it's a second trimester miscarriage. They might show up to one hospital, and we know that if an intervention isn't done, that this person is going to end up with a hemorrhage. They're going to end up septic. A lot worse things than that can happen. I mean, you can end up dead for sure or losing limbs. And depending on the hospital, one hospital might clearly diagnose this as what it is, a miscarriage. Miscarriage doesn't fall under this Texas law, and so they'll intervene and deliver the appropriate care. Another hospital, they might decide that even though this is an ongoing miscarriage, that they won't intervene until there's not a heartbeat or until the person has started to hemorrhage and has started to develop sepsis or is in the ICU. And then that variation of what is the medical emergency, that's not a thing. So even someone hemorrhaging, it might be diagnosed as an emergency differently from one hospital to one hospital to one hospital. So the goalposts not only keep changing, but they're kind of endlessly subjective. Endlessly subjective. Medical emergency isn't an objective term. And one thing I've really been talking a lot about more that we really need to be discussing is that It's not my job to determine what an emergency for someone else is regarding their pregnancy. Like as a person who's pregnant, I should be able to say, this is an emergency. I don't want to hemorrhage until I need a blood transfusion. This is an emergency for me. It's interesting because when Senate Bill 8, referred to as SB 8 in Texas, came out in 2021, you said the law makes it seem like Medicine can be objective. The reality is that medicine is not a science at all. No person's body is an algorithm that follows a direct course. Medicine is an art that is informed by science. We have patterns that we understand through observation and experimentation, but still, people are not machines. Each body is unique. And so where does that leave you? You know, for me... I came into medicine wanting to provide abortion care and through really an activist framework. I wanted to 
change the way that healthcare was delivered for my community. And so my approach to medicine has always been through a critical lens of questioning why we do things, why is it this way, and really analyzing the deeper layers behind it. But not a lot of people come into medicine like that. And so where it leaves physicians really depends. A lot of physicians go into medicine because they want to help people, right? And when you're being faced with losing your career, going to jail, hundreds and thousands of dollars of fines for helping someone, that decision becomes really muddy. And we're not taught as physicians to really question rules and rulemaking and What we've been seeing a lot, and even before the fall of Roe, is that many institutions, healthcare institutions, do more than the law. That their job, right, as money-making industries is not necessarily to take the most risk for their communities, but to mitigate financial risk for themselves. And so what I talk about a lot is that Healthcare institutions are often doing the state's work for them and doing it more strict than the state requires. And so a lot of times physicians are caught in that as well, that they know what's right or wrong ethically for the patient, but that their institution is requiring even more of them than the law states. I think one concrete example of hospitals mitigating risk is something that appeared in the Austin Chronicle just last month. They reported that after the legislature enacted an abortion ban last session that made providing an abortion a felony, except to save the life of a mother, Texas went from thousands of above-board abortions per month to three life-saving ones in August of 2022. Yeah. It's hard to fathom going from thousands of above-board abortions to three in August of 2022. And that need didn't change People have just been forced into the margins, either leaving the state, self-managed abortion, or being forced to continue pregnancies that either they don't want or result in serious medical complications at birth, too. In terms of the people leaving the state, according to the Guttemacher Institute, the average Texan has to drive 525 miles each way to obtain an abortion. In your experience with patients and and, and talking to your colleagues, how many people are actually doing that? That's really far. It's really far. I don't even want to drive to the grocery store that's two miles away. (laughs) I feel the same way. You know, after SB8 was passed, I started increasing my travel to Oklahoma City. I had already been traveling there for about a year to provide abortion care, but I increased the frequency And where before in Oklahoma City, before SB8, I would see Texans in our clinic, but they were mostly from the North Texas area. What I saw after SB8 was Texans from all over Texas, as far down as the valley, driving nine plus hours, 12 hours to get to our clinic. So lots of Texans are getting out, but not all of them. Texas prior to SBA and Roe falling, provided some of the most abortion care anywhere in the country just because of the sheer number of people we have. So a lot of people are flooding neighboring clinics, but there are a lot of people that just aren't able to get out. In the absence of legal 
in-person treatment. Many are turning to medication abortion. About 54% are done this way, according to recent studies. Just this month, the FDA expanded availability of these abortion pills to more pharmacies, including large chains and mail-order companies. Does this give you any solace, especially for pregnant people in states like yours? The reality is it's not going to make a difference for most Texans, probably not for a long time. So far, I think only one pharmacy has become certified under this new FDA provision. Hopefully, the large chains are going to become certified too. But for now, that's not going to supersede state law. And so it's not going to mean that Texans can show up to their local chain pharmacy and and get the abortion pills. But ultimately, I think it's part of a larger strategy of really re-understanding what abortion care is, that, you know, I really believe that abortion pills should be offered over the counter. You don't need me as a physician to hand you pills. You can decide for yourself if you need abortion pills or not, and you can easily figure out how pregnant you are by using some simple questions and determine yourself if the abortion pills are right for you. Abortion pills are safer than Tylenol and ibuprofen. And so they really should be available over the counter. So I think that in the long run, this is, you know, a great step. But in the short run, it's not going to increase access for Texans or Oklahomans. You said that this expansion is part of a larger strategy. What do you think that looks like? The larger strategy is really a cultural rethinking around abortion and abortion care. What I see now and have seen for the past decade plus of providing abortion care is that people really are influenced by the stigma around abortion, that abortion is somehow a wrong decision or an unsafe decision. And so that kind of stigma helps to foster false narratives around abortion care, that it should be regulated, that it should be illegal, that we should be able to put laws around it. But we wouldn't think to do similar things really for most other pieces of healthcare. It is part of a larger strategy of destigmatizing abortion care, abortion pills, abortion access, and really reframing it as part of our regular reproductive lives. Do you think that will work? Yeah, eventually. Everyone really does love someone who's had abortions, but we don't talk about it. And so the more we talk about it, the more that it's available, the harder it becomes to stigmatize and regulate it. I have a sense that one part of this new strategy is being more mindful about including people of color that go through abortions. Yeah. Monica McLemore, a nurse who researches racism and maternal health at the University of Washington, did a study on the mistreatment of women in hospitals. Here's a quote from that study. Our findings suggest that mistreatment is experienced more frequently by women of color when birth occurs in hospitals and among those with social, economic, or health challenges. And that can fuel distrust of the health system. People who don't like how they were treated during pregnancy can be less willing to seek care in the future. As a doctor and as an Iranian yourself, this is something I'm sure you've experienced while working in Texas and and serving all kinds of patients. Yeah. How do you go about getting people of color to reinvest in a system that has historically mistreated them? Why would they opt back into that? 
That's difficult for me to answer, but really is at the crux of why I decided to become a physician. Like I wanted to become a physician to provide abortion care, but specifically I saw a gap in women of color providing abortion care in my state. And I felt really deeply that people deserve to have people care for them that also looked like them or had experiences that were similar to theirs. You know, I understand a distrust of the medical system because me and my family have also experienced negative treatment from healthcare providers for being immigrants or for not speaking English. I had to often translate for family members at a young age myself, right? So I've experienced what that is like on my end and the feeling I get when I walk in a room and the patient is Iranian or Afghan and we both speak Farsi together is really amazing. And after learning to speak Spanish and being able to speak with patients in Spanish together, like being able to bond over that language and shared commonality or experience really engages people. But I think it's not really my job to get people to trust us. They have every reason not to trust physicians. And if I'm going to be honest, I don't trust physicians either. And I am one. That history is very real. What were you thinking about just then? It's interesting to be a part of a system that you distrust and also like have trained in and believe in to some extent. Like I really believe in the transformative power of good health care, of what that can do for people. I've seen how meaningful it is for people. And also I've seen how systemic racism in our healthcare systems continues to harm my community members, my family members, my neighbors. And so it's a really difficult interplay to both be a part of a harmful system, knowing that I can't change medicine, right? But that maybe I can make a little ripple that helps someone else make a bigger ripple, that helps someone else make a bigger ripple in the future. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with Dr. Gazala Moyeti. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, 
So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Coming back, I wonder if you began to weigh the reality of this profession with your belief in its potential around the time of 2013. Because it's then that you enter an OBGYN residency at Texas Tech University HSC in El Paso. When you're there, you work these 80-hour weeks, not to mention studying and, and mentoring peers, but in your second year of residence training, you learn that you're actually pregnant. Of that time, you said, I immediately came under scrutiny from my superiors. What exactly did that look like? Yeah. Um, you know, after I delivered, I had colleagues that when I returned said things like, how was your vacation? You know, returning after my C-section, six weeks postpartum. I had a superior in attending, OBGYN, who brought me into her office and scolded me for requesting time to pump breast milk in between surgeries. I had just asked the OR staff, you know, how much time between the turnover, between cases. And I think they told me like 10 or 15 minutes. And I said, 15 minutes would be great. You know, I didn't have enough time in that hospital to actually get to the lactation room, so I'd have to pump in the bathroom. That would give me enough time. And 
The next day, I got pulled into the superior's office and told, I heard you asked for a case delay to pump. And then I was scolded. I was told that as OBGYNs, sometimes we have to experience pain and that you have to just stick through it. That's part of your job as a surgeon. You know, there was even a meeting that I had heard about later where the faculty were discussing my pregnancy and that other residents were now becoming pregnant too and that what could they do to prevent us from becoming pregnant. So it was, yeah, it was really surprising how hostile our department, our field was at that time at least for residents becoming pregnant and wanting to take time off and wanting space to pump and breastfeed. I mean, it was really traumatic. It was very traumatic to go through. You have superiors at work saying part of the job description is to experience a certain amount of pain. I'll never forget that. How did you process that pain of simply being told something like that? As a resident, you don't have a lot of power. You don't have a lot of voice. You're overworked. You're underpaid. These are the people that hold your ability to be able to graduate and sit for your board exams and pay off your debt in the future, right? They really hold your life in their hands in some way. And so at the time, I mean, I didn't process it really. I mean, I went to my car and cried later, but really I just tried to put my head down and keep working and get out of there as soon as I could. And I mean, I'm still processing it. I try to process it by really trying to change that and name it and identify it for other residents now, making sure that in whatever way I can that they're supported, speaking out and making sure that they have time to pump, that they're getting time off. And and what I'm seeing now is that a lot more programs are giving, you know, parental leave. We didn't have parental leave. I had to save up all my sick time and my vacation time. Then when I came back, this is going to sound wild with the pandemic right now, but I was back postpartum and I got the flu. And I, w- I like was at work working, delivering babies, and I had the flu. They swapped me. It came back for flu A, but my superior wouldn't let me go home because I didn't have any sick days left. So I just like masked up. We didn't use to mask back then. Masked up and kept delivering babies with the flu because I wasn't allowed to leave. I think to every mother listening to this right now, they're unnerved by those conditions. Not that I'm not, but I haven't had a kid and I can't fathom that. Yeah. When you did settle back into the job, did your approach to this work change after having a child? Yeah, 100%. I mean, even as a resident coming back, you know, one of the things that as an OBGYN resident that we do is on postpartum rounds. So after someone has delivered a baby, has birthed, the next day we, you know, examine them while they're in the hospital still. And so typically the interns are showing up into someone's room at like four or five in the morning and kind of waking them up. They just had a baby. And then we're asking them the questions that we need for our list. And the list is like, what kind of birth control are you going to use? Are you breastfeeding or not? How's your bleeding? So we're asking them these questions that we need to check off. And after being in the hospital myself, 
not sleeping at all, completely like just almost losing it from not having sleep, trying to get my baby to sleep, and then having people come in my room so early in the morning to just talk about things that were so unimportant. It really changed my perspective on how we treat birthing people in the hospital, how we approach what's important to us as physicians because of our checkboxes, and what's important to the person for their health, for the care of their baby, for the care of themselves. So my approach to postpartum care completely changed after having a baby. I like to think that I've always had a good bedside manner, but I think that my conversations with people really changed during abortion care, too. That as a mom, I really realized for other mothers what having an abortion means, what choosing an abortion means, the sacrifice that they're making for the children that they have, and the love that they have for the pregnancy that they're ending. And so I really started to frame my conversations around that reality with people, too. I'm curious, especially in a state like Texas, where I'm sure many of the people coming to you have some ties to religion. Yeah. Certainly not uncommon in the South. Yeah. What are those conversations like? How do you frame the decision they're making? You know, I don't ever ask someone why they're making the decision. It's really, it's not important to their care. It doesn't change what I'm doing. And unless they want to tell me, it's not my business. But I do like to just chat with people to take their mind off of things like while we're doing the procedure and I'll ask them about their kids and focusing on like their families. It reminds them of like why they're making the choice. And I think that that's so often misunderstood. Like many people that choose abortion care do so out of a deep love for children, for their own children, for other children. And I think the other misunderstanding is that religion is somehow in conflict I talk to so many people that tell me that they talk to their religious spiritual leader before making the decision and coming in. You know, the reality of our lives is that we kind of exist in these multiple consciousnesses. Conscious eye? It's definitely not conscious eye. <laughs> I know it's not that. Consciousnesses? One of us has a lot of degrees, and it's you. They're, none of them are in English. Well, none. Same. <laughs> <laughs> But either way, that it is not a conflict for most people to go to church and to have an abortion. And in fact, you know, I think this blows people's minds, but everyone who's provided abortion has provided abortion care for one of their protesters. Um, that extremely violently anti-abortion people also get abortion care and that we will treat them just as nice as everyone else, too. Will you? I really will. I mean, you know, yeah, I really will. By the way, this is the first time in the interview your eyes just closed <laughs> as you said. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I've definitely had patients that have, I've taken care of folks that have told me like, I think you're a murderer, but I really need this. That's always a good opener. It's really, it is a very good opener with your physician. And for the most part, yeah, I will take care of everyone with the same compassion. You might not get the Dr. Moyetti extra special love, but you'll just get like the, the normal, totally nice, kind professional. Teasing aside, I, I firmly believe you and, and I believe in your professionalism. Thank you. Yeah. But I think, it's, I think it's okay if not everyone gets the extra special Dr. Moyetti. I, I think that's all right. There is a moment where your job as doctor is put on pause. I want to go to that. 
It's a time before the Dobbs decision, before SB8, and that's this day of March 23rd, 2020, as uh, the pandemic took hold. Yeah. You told NPR that that was the worst day of your career. What happened that morning as, as you walk into the clinic? So I think that was a Monday. It, it was Monday. Still got that memory. And um, we were fairly certain that there was going to be a statement from the attorney general outright listing abortion as non-essential health care. The governor had put out a statement, I think, that Friday or that weekend before saying that non-essential health care would be paused or shut down. And the understanding was that they were going to explicitly name abortion care. What we weren't sure about is like, is it going to be procedures only or is it going to be both? And at that time, you know, in Texas, I mean, still in Texas, although it's totally illegal now, the law is that you have to have an ultrasound 24 hours before with the doctor that's going to provide your abortion care. And so that day was my ultrasound day. And so we were just trying to get people in as fast as possible to get ultrasounds done so people could get their 24-hour clock started before whatever happened happened so that we could maybe still take care of people the next day. Finished doing ultrasounds. We had a, like, conference call or looked at the, the order that came out from Ken Paxton and basically the interpretation was that all abortion care would stop and that we had to stop providing all care. All these people I had seen all day where it was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to do whatever I can. Hopefully tomorrow we can do your pills at least. You know, it was like, no, we can't take care of anyone. And then it turned into this nightmare of every single day calling folks, you know, telling them we're not open. We don't know when we can open again. I can give you a referral to somewhere else in another state. We were being told not to travel anywhere, right? And here I am calling people and telling them, leave Dallas and go somewhere else. I remember calling the person that had been referred to me from another physician, and she told me, like, I really need this abortion, but I have kids and I don't want to go somewhere else and get COVID and die. So people were really, like, I mean, crying and begging on the phone. And... We couldn't do anything. In the weeks after March 23rd, as the country faced massive shutdowns, all of us were trapped in our homes. But most of us were like binge watching a TV show, trying to not go insane. While you were making these incredibly personal and and painful phone calls every night to your patients in need of an abortion. And I wondered... When you hung up the phone and you sat there, how did you feel? Angry, devastated, terrified. I think all those things. Really worried. And, I mean, for me, when I go through that, then that's like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I, what am I going to do? So I put all of that into getting my first, like, out-of-state medical license. So I started getting licensed in Oklahoma That's actually why I started traveling to Oklahoma. I was sure that the Texas government was going to use COVID as some sort of excuse to shut down abortion again. Like if they're doing this now and they succeeded, what's going to happen next time? 
So I started traveling to Oklahoma to a clinic there to take care of people. You know, we didn't have N95s even then. How did you explain that to your child? Actually, just like, mommy needs to go and take care of people. Um, My kid is, I mean, since they started talking, really known what abortion is, they know mommy helps people who are pregnant and want to be have healthy, safe births. And mommy helps people who are pregnant and don't want to be have safe abortions. The governor made mommy's job illegal, and so I got to start going to Oklahoma to take care of people. I have to say that that sounds like a lot for someone to hold. Not just for the kid who's learning language, but but I mean for you as a (laughs) grown woman, a mother, a doctor, a human being first and foremost. How the hell do you hold all that? I don't know. I, I don't know if I do. I mean, really good friends, good colleagues. I have amazing abortion doctor friends that also work in southern states that like we can really talk about this sort of thing with and they understand. You know, as a physician, I'm just one part of the clinic, too, that like I get to work with all these amazing clinic workers, nurses, all the staff. Like we all have this camaraderie around caring for folks that really just fills you up. And then like therapy is also very important. What I'm hearing sounds a little bit like where we started this conversation. Burritos? We'll get back to the burritos, don't (laughs) worry. You on the edge of the cliff, floating, trying to find your way. And, And I wondered if that rudderless feeling, did that return to you this past June when the Dobbs decision was delivered? Oh, yeah. Big time. You know, we all knew the Dobbs decision was coming this summer and that it was going to be bad. You know, the leaked opinion affirmed that, but we knew. And I knew from the past year of working in SB8 what an emotional toll it was taking on me. And so I had planned to take the time off. But I don't know. I thought that, like, the time off would then reveal the mystery door would be opened and then behind the door would be my path. And I have always had this path. Like, I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to be an abortion doctor. I'm going to get into residency. I'm going to be an OBGYN. I'm going to be an abortion doctor. I'm going to go to fellowship. I'm going to get extra training and I'm going to come back to Texas and I'm going to provide abortion care. And then I came back to Texas and like did the thing I set out to do. And then it was like, psych, your job's legal. Is that what it sounded like? That was like literally, it was like, psych. (laughs) In my head, it sounds much more bleak. Yeah. But that sounds like kids on a schoolyard. That's what it felt like. And for a few months, I really felt not great about that, honestly. Like it was negative for me that like, I don't have a path. I don't have a place I'm going. What am I doing? I'm just floating here. Who am I? And then really just in the past few months, I've really come to realize, like, where do I got to go? I don't think any of us have the answer of what's going to happen in the next 10 years. The reality of what's happening with American politics, global politics, we're at an inflection point. And I think that there are multiple realities that could be happening. At this inflection point, since the Dobbs decision, abortion activists have found some, and I emphasize some, 
uh, newfound optimism since the midterms, where voters in many states, including California, Michigan, and Vermont, approved ballot measures to declare that the right to abortion is protected by their state constitutions. Kate Zernicki of the New York Times said that for 50 years that Roe was in effect, everyone knew that it was very flimsy. There was no specific right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution. It was derived from an interpretation of law. What's happened now, because the Supreme Court forced this back to the states, it's unexpectedly opened up a new chapter where abortion rights groups see potentially a way to establish even firmer protections in state constitutions. She refers to this period as a new chapter. Do you believe we're entering such a thing? No, no shade, but no. That work that's being done is super important. And also, like, that's not going to get us ultimately to liberation or to freedom or to access. By us, do you mean Texas? I mean Texas. I mean immigrants and immigrant communities, people of color, but, I, you know, I want to specifically name the Black people and Indigenous people, not as me and the us, but us as the general us, right? But yeah, as Texans. And so when we focus on voting or like this legal process, it really furthers to disenfranchise the most disenfranchised in our country, that we don't have a democratic process in many states. And so simply relying on this avenue isn't the answer, actually. I don't think it's the next chapter. I think the next chapter is something very different. And frankly, I I want a different chapter, too. What do you think that next chapter reads like? One thing that we don't talk about is really how workers in healthcare and abortion care clinic workers specifically are treated, how they're paid, how they're compensated, the realities of the clinic space as a capitalist space. You know, I think the next chapter really looks like critically analyzing these things, critically analyzing how power plays out in our healthcare delivery systems and disrupting all of those pieces. You know, getting abortion back isn't the only goal that we need to be thinking about how we can make healthcare spaces and systems truly healing, truly justice-centered, and truly equitable. And focusing on single issues isn't going to get us there. Like, I want us all to have abortion and also. So that I think the next chapter has to be a lot more complex than constitutional amendments, which are also really, 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 really important. But for you specifically, you're at an impasse where your purpose, you know, the job you feel you need to do, the job you love to do, the job you did in a pandemic, yeah, not just on the phone, but going across state lines, yeah, doing so even as a mother yourself, that's how much you love this job. And now that job is no longer possible in the place you call home. And so I have to ask you, do you feel that at some point you're going to have to leave? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I wouldn't say constantly on my mind, but is on my mind is part of why I'm continuing to float this year. It's possible, but 
the reality is, is that it's not about abortion only. And I can't move away and find some other place where we don't have white supremacist systems. Those actually exist everywhere. Again, like the election coming up for president, like it could get worse, a lot worse. There is a very real reality of a national abortion ban. Like, I don't think there are haven states. I don't think that that is a true framing, that there are safe places and dangerous places, that the reality is, is that we are all in trouble, that all of us have work to do in our own communities to try and get to a better future for everyone. Do you feel like you're most needed in Texas? Is that part of the reason you're you're reluctant to leave? Because I, I hear you on the, there is no safe haven. Yeah. But I don't think you and I can actually sit here you in your attic, <laughs> me in a closet in Los Angeles, yeah. and say that you and I are living in places that are even kind of similar. But you doing your job here is exponentially safer and easier than it is to do where you are right now. Do you feel like at your heart, you studied in Texas, you live in Texas, you're a proud Texan, and you want to help your community there? Does that supersede everything else? Yeah, this is like, this is what I know. I really enjoy living here. Being a Texan is awesome, despite all the bad stuff. Like, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> By the way, that, that's exactly what smokers say, too. We are the Marlboro man. Um, I like smiling at folks for no reason on the street and having them smile back. And I like pointless small talk with strangers and the things that we say to each other. You know what I love? I love wearing a controversial t-shirt that has abortion on it somewhere and someone that is clearly very anti-abortion but also super Texan reads it but then they can't be really rude about it so they have to like say something Southern or make a little face and I love that. What would they say? Huh. Interesting. Bless your heart. I love that. I don't love the racism, but again, like, I don't know. I was born in Oregon. That's where my parents met, and they experienced racism there too. That exists everywhere. It's there's something about I know this racism. Hmm. <laughs> Some people call that Stockholm syndrome. That might be it too. I just want to check my notes here. So you want to stay in Texas because of the small talk. And the smiles. Yes, the small talk and the smiles. Love it. As silly as you and I have been throughout a very serious conversation. Yeah. I feel like the only place to close is to bring it back to the 50 years since Roe v. Wade was passed in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Just to read from it. It was a 7-2 decision holding that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment provides a fundamental right to privacy which protects a pregnant woman's right to an abortion. My last question for you, a half century later, I wonder where the legacy of that decision, which includes its repeal, I wonder where it lands with you in this moment in 2023. You know, I think looking back and reflecting that Roe was never enough, was never enough for Texans, it always allowed a chipping at human rights and it allowed other people to decide how an individual person could access their human right to control their own reproduction. 
I use that terminology, those words, really intentionally, that I think the future isn't about how do we carve out some piece of the Constitution to make sense, to allow abortion in these scenarios, but that really we need to think about how we create a country where every single person has the human right to just, like, exist. And that those aren't things that we argue about. They're not things that we can debate about for an individual person's life, that they have the human right to parent, to not parent, to raise their children safely in safe environments. That's, you know, that's what reproductive justice is. And I think that thinking about abortion as an essential human right is really critical for the next 50 years. So this isn't a carve out of the Constitution. It's not some way we interpret what a bunch of dudes said a long time ago. It's not up for debate. It is just like it is part of the very fabric of being able to live freely in this country. Do you think there will be reproductive justice in your lifetime? No. Is that so dark and sad? It's not the best place to end a podcast. No, it's really not. When I started in this work, I really thought like my piece in this puzzle in this like 50 year history was working towards expanding abortion access in Texas. And over this past year, especially, you know, seeing how people have stepped up or really not stepped up and used their power, you know, politicians with a lot of power, how they haven't stepped up for folks. We have a long way to go. And it's a hard thing to realize that maybe you're only doing a little piece, that little ripple, and that you're not going to get to see the end result. But hopefully, like you've made enough of a difference for people so that they can get to that end result. But I don't think it's going to be in our lifetime. If you're saying to me that the answer to that question is no, that you feel in your heart and your bones that we will not see reproductive justice in our lifetimes, how do you keep getting out of bed and, and continuing to move forward? How do you do that? I think for me, like, a no is actually a huge motivator. Like, a, you can't do that. That's not how we do things. That's impossible. For me, that is actually a little pathway through. If anything, just to be a huge pain in the ass. Even though I feel like it's probably not going to happen, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to try. And I mean, that is the reality for so many people in this country that have historically worked for social justice, civil rights, human rights issues that like it was never going to be in any of our lifetimes, that we're all just making a little incremental change for the future and trying to kind of corny, but like leave the world better than we found it, try and make a little bit of an impact. Well, I have to say, I thank you for the incremental progress that you have made on our behalf and, and, and in this country. It sometimes may not feel like a lot, 
it sometimes may feel like there's a lot more to do. Yeah. I firmly believe it's because of people like you, people who really like being a pain in the ass. Thank you. I think that's how we move forward. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for sitting with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Wow. Fun even. Yeah. I'll take it. I mean, I'm in an attic. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, Dr. Moyetti. Thank you. our show if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to give us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i want to give a special thanks today to our guest dr gazale moyetti to learn more about her work visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com you can also visit the pegasus health justice center at pegasushealthjustice.com If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to hear more like it, I'd recommend our episodes with Gloria Steinem, Beto O'Rourke, Margaret Atwood, Stacey Abrams, Dr. James Whitfield, Noam Chomsky, and Anita Hill. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julie Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Canig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.